ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. There's an argument for the God hypothesis in cosmological fine-tuning and other scientific discoveries, and there's a story behind those discoveries and the conclusions they led to. Hello, I'm Tom Gilson, and today on ID the Future, we hear that story told by Stephen C. Meyer, director of the Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture. It's in a message he delivered remotely to the Dallas Conference on Science and Faith, sponsored by the Discovery Institute, in November 2021. Hello, it's wonderful to be with you for our Science and Faith Conference. At a previous Science and Faith Conference, I had the opportunity to do an interview with Eric Metaxas about my new book, Return of the God Hypothesis. He and I were having a a fascinating discussion, and about halfway through, he and others noticed that one of the young women who was uh, manning the camera for the interview, one of the cameras, uh, was weeping visibly. And later we got a letter from the producer who had hired this young camera woman, and the, the young woman, we'll call her Alice, had shared her story with him. And basically, she was listening to us discuss scientific evidence for the existence of God. She found herself uh, overcome with emotion. And, and she told us a bit of the backstory in her letter. And this is what she said. She said, throughout my college career, professors would constantly lecture that based on the evidence they had provided, there should be no way that anyone in class could believe in God. They'd argue that science was proven and hence God was a myth. I was not equipped, she said, to present a valid opposition in debate. I was desperate to find commonality between my beliefs and my scientific education, but could find none. She went on to explain that though she had finished a biology major and was uh, had very good grades, was was uh, touted for uh, to go on to grad school, that the cognitive dissonance that she experienced between her, her belief in God and the constant sort of um, proselytizing into an aggressive form of scientific atheism that she experienced from her particular set of professors had led her to, to take another direction, another career path. And she ended up going into film production, and that's how she happened to, to find us there on that evening. Now, it's not hard to, to understand how many, many young um, science students, many, many uh, young people in general, would have the kind of uh, feeling that she had of cognitive dissonance. Um, there are many powerful voices in our culture today that have uh, declared that science properly understood undermines belief in God. Many of you may remember and and be aware that since about 2006, there have been a spate of books produced under the heading of the new atheism as a particular literary genre that's become quite popular. Uh, Richard Dawkins was one of the first authors to produce a book of this kind. His book was called The God Delusion. And in it, Dawkins argued that, again, science properly understood undermines belief in God. And his argument went like this. He said, since the 19th century, we've known that the most powerful argument for God's existence is the design argument, because the the evidence of design is publicly accessible, it's visible to all, and, um, and so the evidence of design in nature suggested the need for a designer. But he said that was a powerful argument only until the time of Charles Darwin who explained that appearance of design not as the product of an actual designing intelligence, but instead as the product of an undirected, unguided process that could mimic the powers of a designing intelligence. And that process, of course, was his famed 
idea of natural selection acting on random variations. So Dawkins said, now we have not the not evidence of real design, but only evidence of the appearance of design or the illusion of design. And therefore, we have no evidence of, of a designer, and therefore no public evidence, no scientific evidence of God. So he said, you can still believe in God if you want to, but you can do, you're doing so on the basis of a kind of delusion. And that, thus the title of his book, The God Delusion. Now, there have been many other books of this sort that have come out since about 2006, 2007. The other book that you see on, in the PowerPoint slide behind me, Breaking the Spell, was written by the philosopher of science Daniel Dennett at Tufts University. You can imagine what the spell is. It's religious belief, and you know what breaks it. It's, again, scientific discovery. And so this new atheist genre has, I think, for many young people, uh, undermined their confidence in the possibility of a rational belief in God. And public opinion polling is showing precisely that. Um, this age group from 18 to 31, uh, there's been a, a sharp rise in what are called the, the, what pollsters call the nuns, the religiously non-affiliated, and many young people who have adopted an agnostic or atheistic point of view will point to the lack of scientific evidence for God as, as a key factor in that belief. Now, <clears throat> Dawkins has done a nice job of framing the issue, and I'm going to play off of that today in this talk, because he says the universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if at bottom there is no design, no purpose, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. In other words, the universe we observe is consistent with what philosophers call a materialistic worldview. There's only matter and energy are the things from which everything else comes, and there's no purposive intelligence behind the universe whatsoever. And the properties of the universe, Dawkins says, are exactly what we'd expect if that kind of a materialistic universe was in fact the case. Now what I want to ask today is if that is the case, are the properties of the universe that we observe what we'd expect if a materialistic worldview were true? And I want to argue that no, it's not. And in fact, in my previous work, I've focused on one, just one discovery that is not what you'd expect if the universe was the product of blind, pitiless indifference. And that's the discovery that at the foundation of life, in every living cell, of le every living organism, there is a molecule that contains digital code, code for producing the really important protein molecules that keep cells alive. And that molecule, of course, is DNA, deoxyribonucleic acid. Its structure was first elucidated in 1953 by James Watson and Francis Crick. And they, you remember from biology class, what they showed was that the DNA has this beautiful double helix structure. And on the interior of the molecule, there are four chemicals called bases. And in 1953, they suggested that this, this molecule might be capable of carrying information in a digital or alphabetic form. In 1957, 1958, Francis Crick uh, proposed what he called the sequence hypothesis. And this hypothesis was, if anything, more significant than the original discovery of the double helix structure. Because the sequence hypothesis, in fact, proposed that the four chemical bases called nucleotides, or nucleotide bases, the, the chemical subunits along the interior of the DNA molecule, are functioning like alphabetic characters in a written language, or digital characters in a machine code, like the zeros and ones that we'd use in software today. And in fact, our local hero here in uh, the Seattle area, Bill Gates, has said that DNA is like a software program, only much more complex than any we've ever devised. Now, what I showed in my book, Signature in the Cell, 
is that, that that raised a huge question about the origin of life. Because to build life, you need code. Just as you need new information to build a new program or operating system on your computer, to build life in the first place, or new forms of life, new digital information in the DNA has to be present in order to build the proteins that service the types of cells that are present in the new forms of life. So this origin of this information that we found at the foundation of life posed a huge question. Where did it come from? And in my book, Signature in the Cell, I argued that the origin of the information that's necessary to new forms of life is best explained by a designing intelligence. Why? Well, think of that quote from Bill Gates again about the, the DNA is like a software program. Programs come from programmers. In fact, whenever we see information and we trace it back to its source, whether we're talking about a hieroglyphic inscription or a paragraph in a book or a section of code, a software code in a, in a computer program, or even information embedded in a radio signal. When you trace that information back to its source, you always come to a mind, not a material process. So in my first two books, Darwin's Doubt and Signature in the Cell, I argued that the information necessary to build the first life and subsequent forms of life re suggested the activity of a designing intelligence in the origin and history of life. In, in response to my case for intelligent design in these two books, Many readers have asked me the question, well, who do you think the designing intelligence responsible for life is? Is it a, uh, a designing intelligence within the cosmos, a space alien perhaps, or is it a transcendent intelligence, aka God? And it's an interesting question because a number of scientists have actually suggested that, that uh, the conditions on the early Earth were so incompatible to life forming spontaneously through a series of chemical reactions, that they proposed that my, life might have been seeded here from outer space by uh, effectively a space alien. Um, no less a person than Francis Crick himself proposed that book, and uh, that idea in a little book in 1980. Richard Dawkins uh, floated the idea in a filmed interview that he, uh, that he provided to, to uh, Ben Stein in a film called Expelled in 2009. Now, I've never, been, I've never been persuaded by this space alien designer hypothesis. For one thing, it raises the question, where did the information come from to build the space alien? Uh, but there's a deeper reason to be skeptical about the, the idea that the designing intelligence is responsible for life is an imminent, imminent intelligence within the cosmos. And that's what I'd like to talk about in my lecture today. The, the, and that deeper reason is something I address in my new book, it's, and uh, it has to do with a phenomenon that physicists call fine-tuning, or sometimes anthropic fine-tuning, from the Greek word anthropos for man. So the fine-tuning that's necessary to produce a life-friendly and human-friendly universe. Now, <clears throat> the, some of the fine-tuning was first discovered, some of the most important fine-tuning parameters were first discovered by Sir Fred Hoyle. Uh, a, a British-Australian astronomer and astrophysicist. Uh, Hoyle was, in his early career, a staunch atheist, and in fact was quoted as saying that religion is but a desperate attempt to find an escape from the truly dreadful situation in which we find ourselves. He went on to say that people didn't like him because he took away hope by saying things like that. In any case, Hoyle, a staunch atheist, was working on theories of how carbon formed. And he was struck by a big mystery, which is why is there so much carbon in the universe? The abundance of carbon was mysterious. Carbon, and he realized that carbon was super important because carbon forms long chain-like molecules that are necessary for any form of life to exist. Uh, without carbon, there is, there is no possibility of life. And so 
he began to think about different ways that carbon might be formed. He was working on stellar nucleosynthesis, so thinking about how the elements, the, the larger elements, elements larger than helium and hydrogen, could have been formed in uh, in in stars as they were as they were burning, and he he encountered a mystery, and that is that. That physicists had thought that the way to build up the heavier elements was to add what they call nucleons, neutrons or protons, one nucleon at a time. So if there's a helium atom, you've got two neutrons and two protons, and then to get to carbon, which has six neutrons and six protons, the idea would be you'd add one neutron and one proton at a time and gradually build up to a, 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 heavier, a heavier chemical element. The problem is there is something called the five-nucleon crevasse. Which, mean, which is just a way of saying that the, when you add one nucleon to a helium atom, whether it's a proton or a neutron, the atom is unstable. It has a vanishingly small half-life. And so there's a kind of, you could think of it as kind of a ladder where you've got missing rungs, where the helium is, you can get to helium from hydrogen, okay, but getting beyond helium to anything heavier is impossible because when you add one, one nucleon, that, that chemical state is unstable and vanishes immediately. So another theory was that, well, maybe three helium molecules collided all at once to form a carbon. So that be uh, helium has an atomic weight of four, and if you have three of them, you get 12, that'd be six neutrons, six protons, you'd be good to go. But the odds of getting three helium atoms to collide all at once was, again, vanishingly small. So Hoyle and other scientists were scratching their heads. How could we get carbon to form at all? And therefore, how can we explain the amazing abundance of carbon in the universe that makes life possible? Now, what he ended up proposing was that helium would combine with a heavier element known as beryllium, which has an atomic weight of eight. And this was possible because you could get two heliums to form a beryllium, and then the beryllium and one helium could form, and there, then you get to carbon. But there was a problem with that as well, that when beryllium eight and helium-4 combine, that produces a molecule of carbon that has an energy level that's above standard carbon, the carbon that we see around us. And it was, in fact, it had a very precise, what was called resonance level of 7.65 MeV, mega electron volts. It was just that much more energetic than normal carbon. So Hoyle commissioned a friend at Caltech, a, a physicist named Willie Fowler, and asked him if he would do some experiments to see if there was a form of carbon that had this higher resonance level. And he found that there was, but then as Hoyle began to think about this and realized, he realized that there must be a whole lot of things that had to be precisely right inside stars to produce carbon at that resonance. For, and in particular, for beryllium and helium to combine, they must attain sufficiently high velocities to overcome their repulsive electromagnetic forces. But for that to happen, stars have to be really hot. They have to be hot enough to generate those critical velocities. But for that would only happen if the strength of gravity, as it pulls atoms together, overcoming those electromagnetic forces, were, was just right during the process of stellar nuclear synthesis. If gravitational attraction were too weak, Inside the stars, the temperature wouldn't, wouldn't get hot enough for the atoms to combine to get that high energy level. But if the gravitational attraction was too strong, nucleosynthesis will happen too fast, and the stars would burn up too quickly, and we would never get stable planetary systems where you could have life. So it was a puzzle. It looked like in order to form carbon, the gravitational forces must be extremely finely tuned, and they must be balanced 
just right with the electrostatic for or electromagnetic forces. And so this was, and, and this turned out to be just the tip of the iceberg. There were a whole suite of these so-called cosmic coincidences where everything had to be just right to explain what was necessary to life. Just to produce carbon, here are five of these cosmic coincidences. The gravitational force, or what, uh, what physicists talk about, the force constant that uh, determines the exact strength of gravitation, had to be just right. If it were larger, stars would be too hot, and they would burn up too quickly and too unevenly. If, they, if the gravitational force constant and the force of gravity were smaller, stars would remain too cool, so cool that nuclear fusion would never ignite, and hence there'd never be any heavy element production. The electromagnetic force constant also had to be delicately balanced. If it was larger, the chem chemical bonding uh, wouldn't occur. The elements more mass and elements more massive than boron would be too unstable for, for fission. If smaller, it would be insufficient to produce chemical bonding. And so it went. The other fundamental forces of physics, the so-called strong nuclear force and the weak nucle nuclear force, also had to be delicately balanced. If they were, if if either of these forces were too large or too small. By very small fractions, there would be no possibility of forming stable elements. The basic chemistry of life would be impossible, and life in the, and we would not have a life-permitting universe. On top of all of that, it turns out that the, the fundamental um, units of matter, the smallest units of matter, are called quarks, which make up the protons and the neutrons, had to have very precise masses. Their masses had to have very precise values in order for the right nuclear reactions to occur that would produce the right elements, such as carbon and oxygen, that are necessary for a life-permitting universe. And in fact, in the case of quark, the mass of the quarks, there are up quarks and down quarks, um, there are nine separate sets of criteria that must be met simultaneously to make base, the basic chemistry of life possible. And as Hoyle began to reflect on all this, it began to occur, it, it occurred to him that we lived in a kind of Goldilocks universe where everything was just right. The forces were not too strong, not too weak. The masses were not too, too, too large, not too small. And he started to rethink his staunch materialist, atheist worldview. Now, there are two types of basic types of fine-tuning that physicists talk about. One is the fine-tuning of the laws and the constants of physics. Those basic fundamental forces have very precise strengths. Gravitational force has a precise strength. If it's stronger or weaker, you won't get carbon formation. And there are many other life-permitting parameters that depend on that gravitational force constant being finely tuned. But in addition to that, physicists speak of the fine-tuning of the initial conditions of the universe. This is the configuration of matter and energy at the very beginning, right at the Big Bang. It turns out that the arrangement of matter and energy had to be very precise to allow for a structured and orderly universe such as we have with, with, with galaxies and planets and planetary systems. So that's the fine-tuning of the initial conditions. Roger Penrose, a British physicist, has calculated that this initial, what's called the initial entropy of the universe, was fine-tuned to an exquisite degree. You can't even get your mind around this. The, the calculation he made showed that that initial condition fine-tuning was one part in 10 to the 10 to the 123rd power, a hyper-exponential number, 10 to the 10th power, and then that raised to, a, to the 123rd power. So engineers who are familiar with the concept of tolerances, or anyone who's done just a little you know, work with nuts and bolts knows that, that, that you can only fit the, 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 the screw in the nut if, if there's the right fit, and there's a tolerance. If, it's, if the screw's too big or too small, it's not going to fit. And you have the same kind of thing with the initial conditions of the universe. There's a very fine... To get a, an orderly universe like the one we have, there are very fine tolerances. 
can't be moving, the, the, the conditions of the universe couldn't be changed by very much one way or another. And the, the degree of fine-tuning is exquisite. Now, in addition, there are other fine-tuning parameters that um, are a little bit harder to classify, whether they are concerned the fundamental forces of physics or the initial conditions. There's one that kind of relates to both, and that's called the cosmological constant. And this, this is the outward pushing force that causes the universe to expand in opposition to gravitational force. And to get an expanding universe that doesn't re-collapse on itself and is allowing uh, the evolution of galaxies and stars to, to proceed, that, con that cosmological constant, that outward pushing force, has to be fine-tuned to a very precise degree. The accepted number among physicists, there's a range, but the, the most commonly accepted number is one part in 10 to the 90th power. Now, to put that in perspective, realize that there are only 10 to the 80th elementary particles in the entire universe, 10 to the 80th power elementary particles. So, so getting the, the cosmological constant fine-tuned by chance would be like blindfolding yourself and going out into the universe looking for one elementary particle, but not just one elementary particle hidden in our universe, it could be hidden in any one of 10 billion universes. So that's the degree of improbability associated with getting the correct uh, cosmological constant. It's an exquisite degree of fine-tuning. And many of these parameters have this kind of fine-tuning. Now, there's a British physicist named uh, John Polkinghorne. And when I was a grad student in Cambridge, he came and gave a talk to a, a, a student science group that I was part of about the fine-tuning. And he had a little visual illustration that he liked to use, asking you to imagine that you were uh, on a spaceship, out in space, and you docked at a great space station. And when you arrived there, you came to a, um, uh, you went inside and there was a room, and on the doorway it said, universe creating machine in here. So you walk in, and sure enough, there's this great machine, this huge console, with dials and knobs and sliders, and each are set to precise values, some representing the weak, the value of the weak nuclear force, some the strong nuclear force, some the gravitational force, some the electromagnetic force, some the mass density of the universe, the speed of light, all these different parameters. And it turns out that each, each one of the dials or knobs or sliders is set to a very precise value. And you do some calculations, because of course you're a physicist, and you realize that if you, if you change those dials or click that, that setting one click one way or another, we would no longer have a life-permitting universe. Life in the universe would be impossible. And Polkinghorne used this example to convey the idea of the fine-tuning of multiple parameters that are set just right to allow for the possibility of life. And he used to ask his audience, what do you make of that? Now, one time I had a chance to interview him uh, uh, <clears throat> in Portland when he was here to the United States for a, a talk that Stephen Hawking was given. And I interviewed him afterwards, and I asked him, well, well Sir John, what do you make of all these parameters being set just right? And he said, well, <clears throat> in his British understatement, I don't say that the atheists are stupid. I just say that theism provides a more satisfying explanation. And indeed, many of the physicists who have been involved in discovering these fine-tuning parameters have come to a very similar conclusion. Sir Fred Hoyle, who was, as I mentioned, initially an atheist, uh, or, or very staunch agnostic at best, uh, came to the view, as a result of his own discoveries of these fine-tuning parameters, that they were the product of some sort of intelligent design. And there's a, a famous quotation where he says, a common-sense interpretation of the data suggests that a super-intellect has monkeyed with physics as well as chemistry and biology to make life possible. 
Now, I always like the way the monkeys make it into the origins discussion, even if we're talking about physics. Uh, in any case, this has become a very common view among physicists. The fine-tuning suggests a fine-tuner. Um, <clears throat> and notice this, uh, how, how this conclusion contrasts with that interesting statement of Richard Dawkins with which I began the, the, the lecture. Dawkins again said that the universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if at bottom there is at no, no purpose, no design, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. I would submit that the fine-tuning is not what you would expect if at bottom there was nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. On its face, the fine-tuning seems to suggest a fine-tuner. And many scientists, including scientists who have not abandoned their agnosticism or materialistic worldview, have said as much as well. George Greenstein, a, an astronomer who is, has remained a, a materialist agnostic, has said that the thought still insistently arises that some supernatural agency, or rather agency with a capital A, must be involved. Is it possible that suddenly, without intending to, we have stumbled onto proof, scientific proof, of the existence of a supreme being? Was it God who stepped in and so providentially crafted the cosmos for our benefit? So this, this idea that the fine-tuning suggests fine, a fine-tuner has been a persistent uh, intuition among many physicists since these many parameters have been discovered with, their extreme with the extreme improbability associated with them. Now, why does something like fine-tuning so persistently suggest intelligent design, even to physicists who have atheistic or agnostic or materialistic leanings? Well, <clears throat> There's a good reason for this, and my colleague William Dembski, who's also speaking at this uh, wonderful Science and Faith conference, has done a great deal of, of, uh, to explicate this connection. Why something like fine-tuning seems to trigger this awareness or, or perception of design. In 1998, he wrote a groundbreaking book called The Design Inference with Cambridge University Press. And in it, he articulated a theory of design detection. And one way to illustrate his theory is by looking at the famous uh, faces on Mount Rushmore. If you look at those faces, you immediately recognize that they were the product of some sort of intention, of design, of a purposive activity, of a, in this case, a sculptor. Now, why is that? Many people, when asked that question, are tempted to say, well, because those, the, the shapes are so improbable, you wouldn't expect shapes like that on an ordinary mountain. That's incredibly improbable. And Dembski says, yes, that's right. They are very improbable. It's a very unusual and uh, an improbable configuration of rock on the side of the mountain. But he says, that's not all. Many improbable things happen all the time. The pile of rocks at the base of the mountain on the talus slope, they are also extremely improbable. But we don't want to say that the particular arrangement of rocks in that pile was designed. We look at them, they look like they got there randomly. They're very improbable, but random in their origin. So what is it in addition to the improbability that triggers the design inference? And Dembski says it's the presence of a pattern or a, a pattern match. It's our awareness of an independent, of something that we know from independent experience that matches what we're seeing there on the mountain. In this case, the human face, or even more specifically, the faces of the presidents that we know from pictures in the National Gallery or on money. And so that conjunction of uh, something that's very improbable that also exemplifies and a, a pattern that we know from independent experience triggers the design inference. There are many objections to the idea that the fine-tuning points to an intelligent designer, and I deal with all of them in my new book. But the most important and prominent objection, or contrary interpretation of the fine-tuning today, is known as the multiverse 
you might have encountered the multiverse concept in some popular films, but the multiverse idea is fairly simple. It's the idea that, yes, we have these incredibly improbable parameters that were set just right to allow for life to exist in our universe. But there are many other universes with different laws and constants of physics and different initial conditions, different arrangements of matter and energy at the beginning of those universes. And there are enough such universes to make the improbable features of our universe probable on a mega cosmic scale. That somewhere in one of those multiverses we'd get the right conditions and we just happen to be the lucky ones. That's sometimes, uh, physicists sometimes call that the observer selection effect. We observe that we live in a, a universe with an incredibly uh, improbable ensemble of, of finely tuned parameters making life possible. And we think that that points to design, but we don't realize that there's a bigger picture and that there are all these other universes that don't have that fortuitous, fortuitous combination of factors. And, and we just happen to be the lucky ones and they, and those other universes uh, <laughs> lucked out, did not, did not get, get lucky. Now, <clears throat> this idea only works, and the proponents of the multiverse tacitly understand this. It only works if we live in, if there is some connection between the universes. If the universes are separate from each other, such that they never interact in any way, or, ne or didn't have a common cause, then the things that happen in one universe will not affect the things that happen in another, including things that happen in one universe will not affect the probabilities in another universe. So there needs to be some sort of connection. And what, what multiverse proponents have proposed are universe-generating mechanisms that, will, that enable them to portray our universe as kind of the lucky winner of a kind of cosmic lottery, where there's some sort of process that's spitting out universes at random, and such that eventually a universe with the right combination of initial conditions and laws and constants of physics would arise. And there are two different major universe-generating mechanisms that have been proposed. And both of them are part, are, uh, form parts of speculative cosmological models. One of the universe-generating mechanisms is called the inflaton field, and that's a part of what's known as inflationary cosmology. Another universe-generating mechanism is known as, the, uh, is known as exploring the string landscape, and that's part of something called string theory. Let me talk just a little bit about these speculative cosmologies and why, uh, and, and where these universe-generating mechanisms fits in, and then we'll get back to the fine-tuning and show why the multiverse actually doesn't uh, ultimately explain the fine-tuning. So the first of these speculative cosmologies is known as the inflationary cosmological model, or the inflationary Big Bang model. And this was the idea that suggests that the universe had a beginning, but it's expanded very rapidly for the first few uh, milliseconds of its existence, and then slowed down to a more sedate pace. But the, the universe in that expansion was produced by what was called an inflaton field, some sort of outward pushing energy that caused the rapid expansion of the universe. The idea is that when the inflaton field slows down or becomes less intense in certain localized areas, it shuts off, the energy level shuts off or shuts down, and when it reaches just the right energy level, it would spit out a new universe. Now, 
That's the mechanism of universe generating uh, 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 that's the, the mechanism by which new universes would be generated in the inflationary model. You can see in this picture the kind of idea that the physicists have in mind. That there would be an initial universe, and then there would be these multiple bubble universes spitting out. Now, each of these bubble universes would have the same basic laws and constants of physics that we have in our universe, because the inflaton field is operating uniformly throughout all of these bubble universes as they arise. But each new bubble universe would get a new set of initial conditions, a new configuration of mass and energy. So it doesn't explain all of the fine-tuning, it only explains one part of the fine-tuning. If true, it might, it might do that. Now, the other speculative cosmological model is based on string theory. Now, in string theory, you may have heard a bit about it in PBS documentaries, that sort of thing, and string theory is the idea that the fundamental units of matter are little vibrating strings of energy, and that these vibrating strings of energy are what manifest themselves or make possible the elementary particles, like electrons or the quarks that make up protons and neutrons. So for each um, elementary particle, there's an underlying vibrating string. And for each of the fundamental forces, there's an underlying vibrating strings. Now, to make string theory work for reasons that are highly theoretical and a little bit hard to explain in brief time we have, uh, the physicists had to postulate extra invisible dimensions of space. These were called compactifications of space. And associated with string theory is a whole suite of equations and the hope was that they could solve these equations and generate a description of the universe that was unique to our universe, that matched our universe in a unique way. Instead, when the string theoretic equations were solved, describing these different compactification of space, among other things, they found that there were, there were a, a, a huge number of possible solutions. We didn't get a unique solution that matched our universe. And at first that really bothered the physicists, but then some of them thought, well, maybe we could think of each one of those solutions as corresponding to a different possible universe. And so they got a multiverse out of the string theoretic um, equations. And that, that multiverse, or that ensemble of string, um, of solutions to the string equations, became known as the string theoretic landscape. And the idea here was that each one of the possible compactifications of space described by the string theoretic equations would correspond to a different universe with different laws and constants of physics. Not different initial conditions, in this case, but different laws and constants of physics. So, um, and moreover, that there would be a kind of process of like cascading down the mountain. They proposed that maybe the initial string theoretic universe was a high energy compactification of space and then as it decayed in its energy, it would explore the other possible compactifications of space that were described by the string theoretic equations. Very heady stuff, no question. But here's two things to think about as to whether the multiverse explains the fine-tuning as well as the theistic or intelligent design hypothesis. Two reasons to think that it doesn't. Remember we said there were two different kinds of fine-tuning. There was the fine-tuning of the initial conditions and the fine-tuning of the laws and constants of physics. String theory could, in principle, explain the fine-tuning of the laws and constants of physics by generating a large enough ensemble of different sets of laws and constants of physics to make ours inevitable as the string-theoretic landscape was, was, is being explored. On the other hand, the multiverse, the inflationary cosmological multiverse, 
doesn't give you new laws and constants of physics, but it does give you new initial conditions. So if you somehow combine those two universe-generating mechanisms, you might be able to generate enough universes of the right kind with different combinations of laws and constants of physics on the one hand, as well as different combinations of initial conditions on the other, to get a big enough ensemble to render our universe probable ultimately within that vast number of universes that would be generated by these two separate mechanisms. Now is that, how does that explanation compare with the theistic design explanation? Well, uh, or intelligent design. I think it fails for two main reasons. First of all, it's a very convoluted explanation. It fails the test of Occam's razor. Remember Occam's razor was the idea that all other things being equal, we should prefer hypotheses that don't multiply theoretical entities. That, that we should prefer the simpler explanation in the sense of not positing lots of, of th pure theoretical postulates. The design hypothesis postulates one clear, simple theoretical postulate, a fine-tuner. A transcendent, intelligent fine-tuner explains the fine-tuning. Whereas this, the multiverse has to posit the universe-generating mechanism of string theory plus the universe-generating mechanism of the infl inflationary cosmology. But, that but each of those mechanisms involves the postulation of multiple theoretical postulates, things that we could never observe that are simply constructed in the minds of physicists to explain things we do observe. There's nothing wrong with doing that. Physics does that all the time. The, the inference to a designer is a postulation of something we can't observe to explain things we can. But notice the inference to design is much simpler in the Occam's razor sense than the multiverse. The multiverse, first of all, has multiple universes, billions of them, uh, more than billions of them. And it, but it also has to postulate that inflaton fields exist, that inflaton fields in the process of inflation will continue eternally into the future, that the inflaton fields will, will in fact produce new universes, we don't know that, that's just a postulation, if they have the right shutoff energies within the right shutoff time intervals. The uh, multiverse also has to postulate that strings exist and that they are the fundamental constituents of material reality. That's a pure theoretical postulate. That six or seven hidden dimensions of space exist that all of the different compactifications of these extra hidden spatial dimensions uh, exist as different universes, that every mathematical solution to the string theoretic equations corresponds to an actually existing universe with different laws and constants of physics, and that there are enough universes to make the improbable fine-tuning of our universe probable. I call this not six impossible things before breakfast, like in Alice in Wonderland. This is eight implausible conjectures before breakfast. In my book, I show that there's actually a few more than I could fit on these two slides. So the first reason to prefer the intelligent design hypothesis over the multiverse hypothesis is that the intelligent design hypothesis is much simpler in the sense of Occam's razor. It postulates fewer abstract theoretical entities and postulates. But the second reason to prefer intelligent design over the multiverse is that the multiverse doesn't actually explain the fine-tuning. Not ultimately. Both of these universe-generating mechanisms, the string-theoretic exploring the, the landscape mechanism and the inflaton shutoff energy mechanism of the inflationary cosmology, themselves require prior fine-tuning, an exquisite prior fine-tuning. In the case of the inflationary cosmology, both the shutoff energy and the time interval in which that shutoff occurs have to be pre 
precisely finely tuned for it to be possible to generate a new universe, even in theory. In the, in the string theoretic landscape, there are multi multiple things that have to be finely tuned, the most important of which is setting the first possible universe at the highest energy level so it can cascade down the landscape to explore all the other possible ones and so that all the different universes eventually uh, are instantiated or come into existence. So even though the, the, the multiverse is attempting to explain the fine-tuning, it actually ends up presupposing prior sources of unexplained fine-tuning. And therefore it doesn't ultimately explain the fine-tuning, it just pushes the fine-tuning problem back one generation. So even if it's true, it doesn't explain the fine-tuning, which leaves the fine-tuning unexplained. Except that there is one thing we know from experience that always produces fine-tuning, or that, that is always associated with fine-tuning, and that's intelligence. Think of the other systems that we would say are finely tuned. A fine French recipe, uh, an exquisite Swiss clock or watch, um, any fine piece of machinery, uh, uh, an internal combustion engine, digital code in a software program, or the fine-tuning that we see in the universe. Fine-tuning systems have in common those two criteria of design detection that we talked about. A highly improbable arrangement or set of parameters that also exemplify a, a functional specification. And therefore, we do know of something that explains fine-tuning, and that is mind or intelligence. The multiverse doesn't ultimately explain fine-tuning. It leaves unexplained something that we only explain by reference to intelligent agency, which is to say fine-tuning or the conjunction of a small probability specification. And that's what the fine-tuning actually is, a small probability specification. Thus, the, the uh, incorrigible intuition of design that confronts physicists when they think about this problem. And I don't think the fine-tuning then has explained it away. So if we have evidence of an intelligent designer in the fine-tuning, what kind of a designer are we talking about? Are we talking about that space alien that in, that, uh, or imminent designer, a designer within the cosmos, aka a space alien, or are we talking about a transcendent form of intelligence, aka something like God? Well, <clears throat> remember something about the fine-tuning. The fine-tuning parameters are set from the very beginning of the universe. Clearly, the initial conditions of matter and energy at the beginning of the universe are, are, are so set. The, the initial push of that cosmological constant is from the very beginning. And the laws and constants of physics are set very early. And any, um, and, and this poses a problem for the imminent designer intelligence, because any, any being within the cosmos capable of, <coughs> uh, any being within the cosmos is not going to be capable of explaining the origin of the fine-tuning upon which its very existence depends. The Australian physicist Luke Barnes has written the fantastic book, The Fortunate Universe, about the fine-tuning, says that uh, an imminent intelligence might be able to move matter and energy around, but such an intelligence could not explain the origin of the initial conditions of the universe that precedes it exists, its existence, nor could it explain the, the, the features of the laws of physics that apply to it at every moment in time. So, that fine, so when we think about, so when we bring the fine-tuning evidence into, into the equation, as well as the evidence we have in biology of design, only a transcendent designer explains both. Uh, an imminent intelligence might explain biological design, but it certainly doesn't explain cosmological or physical design that we find with the fine-tuning. And so what I do in the book, the, uh, the Return of the God Hypothesis, is I compare competing metaphysical or worldview explanations with respect to both the evidence of design we have in biology, 
but also the evidence of design that we have in physics. And I also bring in one other key fact, which is that modern astrophysics and cosmology has shown that the universe had a definite beginning in time. And I compare then competing worldviews with respect to these three big facts to, to try to assess this question of who is the designer and what can science tell us about the, the designer responsible for life and indeed the universe. Uh, we've seen that the, what's called panspermia or the space alien idea doesn't explain the fine-tuning of the, the laws and constants of physics or the initial conditions of the universe. The Eastern philosophy of pantheism also fails to explain the fine-tuning because the pantheistic God is not a God that has a mind. The pantheistic God is coextensive with matter and energy. So God is in the flowers, it's in the trees, it's in the, it's in, in the rocks and the planets, but God is not a personal entity with a mind to, with, with whom you could communicate, nor a mind that could choose one thing rather than another, in other words, to design something. So the pantheism fails as an explanation for the fine-tuning, and indeed for the origin of the universe itself, because before there is matter and energy, there is, no, there is no pantheistic God, and yet matter and energy come into existence a finite time ago, our, our modern cosmology tells us. We've also seen that materialism, or naturalism, doesn't explain really any of these uh, important facts about biological and cosmological origins. To the extent that there is evidence of a designing mind at the foundation of life in the digital code, that's not something that a materialistic worldview could explain because it denies the existence of a mind independent of the, our own minds that arise through the evolutionary process. So it, there's no mind prior to the origin of life to explain the origin of the information necessary to produce it. Similarly, materialism doesn't explain the origin of the fine-tuning. As we've seen, the multiverse, which is its best attempt to do so, fails because it just pushes the fine-tuning question back, and it certainly doesn't explain the origin of the matter, space, time, and energy that come into existence at the beginning of the universe, because prior to the beginning of the universe, there is no matter, space, time, and energy to do the causing, to bring the universe into existence. So materialism as a worldview also fails. Deism might explain the fine-tuning of the, of the universe at the beginning, it might explain the origin of the universe, but it doesn't explain the evidence of design that arises after the beginning, such as we see in biology and the evidence of digital code and DNA. It explains two of the three key facts, but not the third. And so what I conclude in the new book is that really only theism, classical theism, the, the, the postulation of what I call a God hypothesis, where God is conceived of as intelligent, personal, transcendent, and active in the creation after the beginning, can explain each of these three key facts, that the universe, first of all, had a beginning, that it's been finely tuned from the beginning, and that there have been uh, infusions or bursts of information coming into our Earth's biosphere since the beginning. When we look at those three, three key facts, theism provides the best overall explanation. And as we've seen with the focus of the, this lecture on the fine-tuning, that fine-tuning evidence is really critical in eliminating, as a plausible explanation, both materialism, pantheism, and the panspermia idea of, a, of an alien designer. Still leaves in the running deism, but deism can't explain the, the biological evidence of design we have. So, as a result of this kind of analysis, um, not many scientists and and um, uh, historians and philosophers of science are are opening their minds again to the idea of a God hypothesis. Uh, Frederick Burnham, a prominent historian of science, said that the idea that God created the universe is a more respectable hypothesis today than at any time in the last 100 years. In my new book. Return of the God Hypothesis, I go a little further than that, and I argue that uh, God conceived as traditional theists do, as a, again, a transcendent, personal, intelligent uh, agent who acts in the creation after the beginning, that that concept of God provides the best overall evidence we have 
of biological, physical, and cosmological evidences, including this fascinating evidence that we've been examining of the fine-tuning of the laws and constants of physics and the initial conditions of the universe. Thank you very much. That was Stephen C. Meyer telling the story of scientific discoveries that have led to what he calls the return of the God Hypothesis. You'll learn much more about that in his book of the same name, Return of the God Hypothesis, easily found at any major bookseller. For ID the Future, I'm Tom Gilson. Thank you for listening. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.